from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. A tumultuous week in U.S. politics includes a State of the Union reality show, an acquittal for the third U.S. president impeached, and a dubious beginning to the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. It just looks like they're trying to prevent Bernie Sanders from winning the Iowa caucuses. And a D.C. council member says that district officials are working more for developers than for the most vulnerable residents in public housing. I am extremely concerned that the D.C. Housing Authority is not just drifting away from its mission to serve our most vulnerable residents, but deliberately abandoning our most vulnerable residents. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, three days after the Iowa caucus launched the 2020 presidential campaign season, state party leaders finally released 100% of the returns. Most corporate media organizations continued to declare former Mayor Pete Buttigieg as the undisputed winner with a narrowest lead of one-tenth of one percent over Senator Bernie Sanders in the delegate count. The Associated Press said that it could not declare a victor. Meanwhile, Sanders declared himself the winner with 6,000 more votes than his nearest rival. Sanders spoke at a press conference in New Hampshire. Some 6,000 more Iowans came out on caucus night to support our candidacy than the candidacy of anyone else. And when 6,000 more people come out for you in an election, Uh, than your nearest opponent, uh, we here in northern New England call that a victory. Sanders also announced his campaign raised $25 million during January alone, more than any other Democrat raised in any full quarter of 2019. And in another extraordinary development in the already extraordinary Iowa caucus debacle, Tom Perez, Democratic National Committee Chair, called Thursday for a re-canvassing of Monday's caucus, and this is three days after it occurred. Then later in the day, Perez backtracked. More on the Iowa caucus after headlines. Now, Donald Trump actually ran in the Iowa Republican caucus and won over his only opponent, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. 24 hours later, Trump delivered his State of the Union address in the style of a game show host, taking the opportunity to deliver a campaign stump speech that contained numerous untruths, such as claiming that his economic plans have produced a boom in blue-collar jobs. This is part of a video montage posted by Now This with just three lies. Three lies of the many lies. In just over two years since the election, we have launched an unprecedented economic boom, a boom that has rarely been seen before. We have created 5.3 million new jobs and importantly added 600,000 new manufacturing jobs. As expected on Wednesday, the Senate voted to acquit Trump on charges related to his impeachment 
stemming from his conversation with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Trump was accused of using promised weapons to Ukraine to pressure Zelensky to investigate the role played by former Vice President Joe Biden in Ukraine. The impeachment vote ended a process that divided progressives, with some believing that the impeachment was necessary and others considering it a waste of time and money, with Trump's most egregious possible crimes not even included in the list of charges against him. Since the impeachment started, Trump's favorability ratings are the highest ever among his backers, with a Gallup poll job approval rating at 49%, the highest in Gallup polling since Trump took office in 2017. Now, one demographic that Trump is not polling well among are young people passionate about the climate crisis. Chantel James attended a meeting this week where, unlike at the State of the Union, climate was the chief concern. Metro D.C. Democratic Socialists of America hosted a community talk on eco-socialist principles for a Green New Deal as part of its Socialist Night School on Tuesday at Cleveland Park Library. DSA member Ashit gave a talk that laid out the immediacy of the climate crisis as backed by scientists, then moved into a solutions-oriented discussion that underscored the main points of a Marxist-informed eco-socialism to guide grassroots movements towards creating a sustainable world. So, you've heard of the Green New Deal. It's an idea that's been around for over a decade at this point, but it really broke through into the mainstream in the past year because of, uh, among other people, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who put out this big resolution with really big transitional goals for reaching zero emissions in the U.S., with a decade-long mobilization of the federal government in the next 10 years, which, among other things, would reach 100% renewable energy through a federal job guarantee, it would decarbonize agriculture, manufacturing, major industries, and democratize energy with more public and cooperative ownership. It would really center equity for workers, for low-income people, indigenous and frontline communities who've been like bearing the brunt of capitalism. And very importantly, it would be a global Green New Deal to help uh, people in other countries transition to zero carbon economies. So this is a transition plan that would get us through the critical next decade where we just don't have any time to lose and start like very quickly laying the groundwork for like any kind of survivable future. And it's a proposal that sketches out an alternative to what we can call disaster capitalism, which is after big natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina or something, often the worst actors like corporations and other profiteers just swoop in and like reshape regulatory structures just to increase their own profits at the expense of the people who are like suffering the most. To participate in upcoming organizing with the Democratic Socialists of America, look at their calendar on mddcdsa.org. From Northwest DC, this is Chantal James. In culture and media, there's a big ABC presidential debate Friday night, February 7th, tonight as we go to broadcast. And you can tell ABC what you think about how corporate media is covering the presidential election on Saturday noon at the ABC offices in D.C., 1717 DeSalle Street, Northwest, three blocks south of DuPont Circle, just off Connecticut Avenue. Organizers say that media outlets are ignoring, minimizing, and distorting issues that voters care about, like climate change, poverty, a safe, debt-free future for young people, 
economic security for working people, the need for universal health care, mass incarceration, the bloated military budget, and the threat of more war. Let ABC and other corporate media know that voters deserve better. This action is organized by the Institute for Public Accuracy and at Saturday noon at the ABC offices in D.C., 1717 DeSalle Street Northwest, three blocks south of DuPont Circle. Also, there will be a fundraiser for the protectors of the Venezuela Embassy on Friday, February 7th. Again, as we go to broadcast tonight, go to the Facebook event to RSVP or to DefendEmbassyProtectors.org. Margaret Flowers, Kevin Zeese, David Paul, and Adrian Pine are the four embassy protectors who were arrested. And their trial begins Tuesday, February 11th, 9 a.m. at the Prettyman Courthouse, 333 Constitution Avenue Northwest, Washington, D.C., room 22A. Go to defendembassyprotectors.org for more information or ways to support. And finally, D.C.-based jazz and arts curator Bernard Gray, Bernard Gray joined the Ancestors on January 19, 2020, while curating a jazz event in Cuba. His family has set the date of March 7th for a memorial and is seeking donations, including in-kind donations and community assistance. Email rememberingvernardgray at gmail.com if you can help. That's rememberingvernardgray at gmail.com if you can help. And those are some of the headlines and happenings. Next, what was shady about the Iowa caucus? Stay with us. Really wasted. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, in an extraordinary development, in the already extraordinary debacle that is the 2020 Iowa caucus, Tom Perez, Democratic National Committee Chair, called for a re-canvassing of the Iowa caucuses on Thursday, days after the actual caucus occurred. With me to discuss everything related to the caucus is Max Blumenthal, senior editor of The Gray Zone and best-selling author of several books, including Republican Gomorrah, Goliath, The 51-Day War, and The Management of Savagery. He has produced print articles for an array of publications, many video reports, and several documentaries, including Killing Gaza. Thank you for joining me today, Max. Great to be on. Well, just as a reporter, just as someone covering the caucus, why don't you just first give me your reaction to what happened the night of the caucus and what's happened since? It, it just looks like they're trying to prevent Bernie Sanders from winning the Iowa caucuses. Then if we look a little bit deeper, I and mean, this is what I've been working on at the Gray Zone, the site I edit, thegrayzone.com, and we look at the political network that destroyed the Iowa caucuses, first through this notorious app, this malfunctioning, unworkable app run by a company called Shadow Incorporated, we see a political network that's closely linked to Pete Buttigieg, who is also declaring himself the victor. He's the establishment favorite, and which has a track record of running disinformation campaigns and using undemocratic tactics around the country. So I'm talking about one consultant or political operative in particular, uh, Tara McGowan, who runs this dark money group called Acronym. And Acronym is the group that spun out Shadow Incorporated, which created the app. All of the staff on these groups are very close to Pete Buttigieg, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. McGowan is a Barack Obama campaign veteran. She is married to a senior advisor to Pete Buttigieg. She had dinner the night before the caucuses with Troy Price, the Iowa State Democratic chair, who is himself a veteran of Hillary Clinton's campaign. Shadow Incorporated, the company that made the app, is staffed by Hillary and Obama veterans. So you get the point. What I did with my report today, I've done two reports on this. With my report today is take a look at the network behind Tara McGowan, who's blamed in national media. If you Google her name and you're listening to this, you'll see even the New York Times kind of writing a critical profile of her as this kind of bungler. But I looked at the network behind her and her group acronym was actually created with money and encouragement from a Silicon Valley billionaire named Reed Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn. I'm sure many people listening to this use LinkedIn. He's worth about $2 billion. And what he's done is fund groups like Acronym, like McGowan, to use disinformation and manipulation tactics in social media to move people to the Democratic Party who are not traditionally Democratic. Reed Hoffman's money paid for an extremely devious campaign in Alabama during the special Senate election in 2017, where Doug Jones, this moderate Republican running as a Democrat, was running against Roy Moore, this far-right Republican. And Hoffman's money paid for another technology firm to basically set up Facebook pages and even uh, arrange media for a dark horse write-in Republican candidate to take votes away from Roy Moore. They also purchased Russian bots 
basically Twitter accounts that were bots run out of Russia with Cyrillic names to follow Roy Moore's Twitter account. And then they spun out a story in national media that the Kremlin was supporting Roy Moore. So this was just a disinformation campaign. It was secret. We learned about it through documents that were leaked into the media. We covered it at the Gray Zone in 2018. It was called Project Birmingham. And so the same guy who sponsored the career of the consultant who wrecked Iowa was funding that operation. And there were several other disinformation campaigns that they've sponsored across the country using Facebook manipulation tactics to persuade center-right voters to vote Democrat in swing states. So, I mean, you just put all these pieces together, connect the dots, and then it really casts a shadow over what happened in Iowa. And you can see it kind of in a sharp frame. And you have to start asking yourself, was this really just a series of mistakes or something more sinister at play? So I think that most people, just lay people who aren't into apps or like digital technology, will ask ourselves, you know, why would they take something that is a fairly simple, transparent process? You know, you count votes, you, you know, you either have a calculator or you have a a blackboard at your caucus site and you're tolling up the votes and you call them in, right? Yeah. Why was it even necessary to funnel that transparent process through a non-transparent process like an app? It wasn't necessary. It's absolutely unnecessary and deeply dangerous. If you're using the technology that, you know, Iowa caucuses used 40 years ago, you're talking about paper ballots and telephones. That's analog technology that can't be hacked, that can't be sabotaged, that doesn't malfunction. It's just real stuff. And people there know how to use it. So all of a sudden, these 30 and 40-something carpet-bagging tech wizard hucksters come in. Um, they've gotten all these big contracts to secure our elections because they whipped up all this hype about Russian interference. And they come and take over the process. And a lot of the people who are like didn't grow up using smartphones don't are basically this app is dropped at their doorstep. There was no rollout. They weren't trained in it. Two literally two days before they got this faulty app, and they're told to download it on their phones, and no one knows how to use it. It doesn't work anyway. And then if you were watching the caucuses that night, as many listeners probably were, you first heard that the Democratic Party needs to do quality checks. I mean, this is like Soviet language, quality checks. And then, so they were openly lying about what the problem was. And then it took the media hours and hours to figure out who made the app because it was kept secret under lock and key by the Democratic Party's chair in Iowa, Troy Price, who's a Hillary campaign veteran. So there's just this level of opacity a complete lack of transparency, lying, and bizarre excuses to cover up what appears to be not just a series of mistakes, but a campaign to sabotage Bernie Sanders by people who are in the tank for Pete Buttigieg. So I didn't understand why Bernie Sanders' raw vote total kept going up and up and up. And so what they call the popular vote was increasing for him but he was first at a deficit of delegates. But then I think maybe on Thursday, he t- began to tie for delegates or something. And then this Perez announcement came out. So 
Um, I'm wondering if the, all the people behind these machinations didn't count on the fact that uh, the Sanders campaign was going to do their own count and have their own technology to prove that they were being robbed. Right, right. And actually saw attacks on Bernie Sanders for uh, putting people outside polls and actually conducting his own exit polls because they expected this to happen. One more interesting incident that took place was two days before the Iowa caucuses, there is a a poll by the Des Moines Register, which is considered historically accurate, that forecasts the victor. And the Buttigieg campaign complained that the poll somehow was faulty. They never offered a reason. And the party agreed not to release it. And it just didn't happen. For the first time, I think in like 40 or 50 years, it just didn't happen. And Robbie Mook, I saw on Twitter, he's Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. He, he runs this kind of phony elections integrity uh, in operation out of Harvard. He had been in Iowa to prepare county chairs for supposed worst case scenarios. He was defending uh, not releasing the poll. And this mm-hmm. is someone who rarely comments on Twitter. So, so just something was funny ahead of time. Right. And now Bernie Sanders has produced detailed exit polls that no one has challenged. None of the exit polls that were taken by independent organizations showed Buttigieg ahead. Sanders was ahead in every demographic. But Pete Buttigieg comes out on election night as everything's falling apart and declares victory. It really is unprecedented. I mean, we saw Bush steal the election in 2000, but it was done in kind of a sort of a way that the U.S. public couldn't follow in real time, I guess because we didn't have social media. But uh, this is just so obvious, and it's so clear what's happening. Deval Patrick I mean, who remembers who Deval Patrick is and who in Iowa knows who Deval Patrick is? I had forgotten he was running for president. When he launched his campaign at Morehouse, they had to cancel his uh, speech because nobody showed up. But somehow Deval Patrick was receiving votes in rural Iowa counties. And now those votes have been recounted and they've gone back to Bernie Sanders. So something really strange is going on. Well, one of the things that I'm really uh, concerned about is the fact that the caucus itself is being blamed. Uh, I do believe that there's a problem with the lack of diversity in Iowa and New Hampshire as these two places that get to go first that don't really reflect the population of the United States. But the caucus system itself, which seems to favor progressives, is now coming under attack. But if we didn't have the caucus system, we could never discover these things. So the, right. the same right. people, the same people who have uh, manipulated this process, they're trying to blame the caucus system. But it wasn't the caucus system. It wasn't those all those Iowans who worked for days and weeks and months to make the process right who failed. Even though it's complicated, they did their jobs and they operated as citizens and came out and participated. And now the people who took over their work, who had to take those reports, they're the ones who screwed it up. And now they want to say, oh, see, this caucus thing is just not right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there have been problems in Iowa caucuses before. I mean, the fact is that there, there's just no evidence that Pete Buttigieg is the winner here. There's no evidence. And the votes have to be counted. And so... When we hear people trying to delegitimize the caucuses, they tend to be people who are in the tank for Buttigieg or Biden. And if they want to say that Iowa is this extremely white, vanilla state that doesn't reflect America, that's fine. 
But now that Bernie Sanders has national name recognition, he's leading among people of color. So I think that he would perform extremely well in a state like Nevada, which has a very strong Latino population. He's going to perform extremely well in California, which has possibly the most diverse population on planet Earth. So I don't think this is really an issue of diversity. It's really about trying to deny momentum to Bernie Sanders, because once he gets going, if he wins New Hampshire, performs well in South Carolina or wins Nevada, his campaign is like a freight train and the Democrats don't really have an answer to him except to sabotage democracy. Yeah, I read one report saying that there were these satellite caucuses that still had to be counted and those would probably favor Bernie Sanders because he worked very hard with groups of students, perhaps groups of people who are disabled or or people who had to work at nights and who couldn't get to the uh, Monday night caucuses. So I'm very interested to see what happens. And I wonder if I can just be sure that they'll be counted uh, right by if the DNC is involved. So <laughs> here we yeah. go. All right. Well, I've been speaking with Max Blumenthal. He's senior editor of The Gray Zone and best-selling author of several books, including The Management of Savagery. And he, he's also made several documentaries, including Killing Gaza. Thank you, Max. Thanks a lot, Esther.
Now the burning is gone and myself has come on home. I'll never be the same again. A revelation. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. I could say that this week's State of the Union address was a reality TV show, except that a decent reality show is not filled with such bold-faced lies, like Trump claiming that he is achieving peace in the Middle East. Well, here to discuss the State of the Union address and other international issues is Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, and the author of more than three dozen books, including the recent White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rose to Mandela. He is also on the grounds geopolitical analyst. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Well, thank you. Well, of course, I'm interested in the many lies in the State of the Union, but I'm also interested in an historical view, which I know I can get from you. (laughs) He went everywhere from actually speaking out Manifest Destiny to American exceptionalism to giving a fake president of Venezuela a standing ovation. Wow. So you take it from there. Well, obviously, this was a horror show on steroids. There was no mention of climate change, no mention of the START Treaty, that is to say, trying to reduce the possibility of a nuclear exchange with Moscow. Uh, It's difficult to say what were the worst aspects of this horror show. Was it the metal to the racist gas bag, Rush Limbaugh? Was it the demonizing of immigrants? Or, as you suggested, was it the presence of Juan Guaido, the posor from Caracas, who was also gifted with a White House meeting with the 45th U.S. president? Now, I must say that his presence at the State of the Union may have been an outgrowth of White House infighting, because recall that during Mr. Trump's visit to the Davos meeting of the elite in Switzerland, uh, Mr. Guaido was snubbed. Uh, Mr. Guaido and Mr. Trump were sharing turf in Florida just a few days ago, but Mr. Guaido was snubbed. And so it seemed as if this appearance that he made at the State of the Union was the product of White House infighting and protracted negotiations. In any case, uh, it's apparent that the White House, and Mr. Trump in particular, are energized by the overthrow of Evo Morales in Bolivia just a few months ago. It's also apparent that there is a Cold War context to this Venezuelan crisis. 
Washington and Mr. Trump in particular are particularly blaming Cuba for the fact that the Maduro regime is hanging on. Of course, there is the calculation that this plays well in South Florida as Mr. Trump gears up for the 2020 presidential race. And it's also apparent that there are many cold warriors who see Venezuela as a kind of turf by which they can fight out their global battles with Russia and China. Russia in particular, because note that Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, will be in Venezuela this weekend, which is already drawing hoots and howls from the Cold Warriors in Washington. Note that this is also seen in a Cold War context insofar as Secretary of State Michael Pompeo just a few days ago uh, in an extraordinary maneuver, not only visited Ukraine on Russia's border, but also Belarus, which had not had a visit from such a high-level official from Washington in years. By the way, speaking of targeting Russia, uh, pay careful attention to the fact that President Erdogan of Turkey, who is in a conflict with Russia as we speak over policy in Syria, also just visited Ukraine and also made some rather disparaging comments about Russian policy towards Ukraine. And the historians in our audience might recall that for hundreds of years, this conflict between Russia and Turkey was a dominant factor shaping global politics. And I'm afraid to say that it may be rearing its ugly head once again. In any case, Mr. Guaido may be on life support in terms of his political ambitions, particularly as pollsters suggest that he and his minions will not do well in the Venezuelan elections that are scheduled for later this year. However, despite the presence of Mr. Guaido at the State of the Union, the other scary aspect of this farce in Washington was the presence of CIA director bloody Gina Haspel, the torturer-in-chief, who vigorously applauded Donald J. Trump, a maneuver that was condemned by a number of her predecessors, including intelligence professionals like John Brennan and Michael Hayden, who said that this was a violation of protocol. Uh, perhaps Ms. Haspel is aware of the fact that with Mr. Trump acquitted as a result of this trial in the Senate concerning impeachment, that Mr. Trump may be totally unleashed, which obviously sends a dangerous signal to many of his domestic opponents. But perhaps more than that, it sends a dangerous signal to his international opponents. And in this context, I should mention that quite troubling was the fact that when Mr. Guaido received his shout-out at the State of the Union, uh, there was bipartisan applause. The Democrats, or at least many Democrats, were standing and sharing shoulder to shoulder with their Republican cohorts, which obviously, in some sense, does send a signal that there will be bipartisan support for Mr. Trump's dirty tricks via the CIA, assuming, and I think it's a fair assumption, that they will be unleashed not only towards Iran and Cuba and Russia and China, but 
as the State of the Union address suggested, towards Venezuela as well. It's interesting that you mention Venezuela because this coming week uh, is actually the beginning of the trial of what we call the embassy protectors here in Washington, D.C. And these are four individuals who were arrested for occupying the Venezuelan embassy here at the request and with the permission of Venezuela, uh, the embassy being their sovereign property here in the United States. And there have been actually some moves by the judge already to basically try to deny them a fair trial where they can present their arguments for actually being in the embassy and according to international law and how they had various permissions to be there. So that's something that we're watching and there's some fundraisers for them. And I'm going to actually mention to listeners at the end of the show how they can find out more and support the embassy protectors. But right here in D.C. where that whole drama played out, you have Juan Guaido getting this bipartisan support and just like there's been bipartisan uh, willingness to to persecute and to not protect Americans exercising our so-called freedom of speech and First Amendment rights. Well, let me ask you, is the defense going to push for a jury trial? I am not sure. I need to find out more about the upcoming trial so that we can cover it on the show. Well, I mentioned that as well because that raises the contradiction of U.S. national politics, which is that when you have these political trials in Washington, D.C., which has a substantial black population, that oftentimes is a boom for these kinds of defendants, which is one of the reasons you've had a lot lot of loose talk from Republicans of late about moving more federal jobs out of Washington, D.C., to Kansas City, to Denver, to Tennessee. Senator Marsha Blackburn, of course, has been spearheading that effort. And I think it's more than just shrinking the size of the federal government. It's also trying to affect the composition of jury pools as well. Well, I know we're quickly running out of time, and we won't be able to uh, get into detail about the another report by Human Rights Watch uh, detailing the dangers faced by people deported to El Salvador from the United States, including murder, rape, and torture, documenting 138 cases of Salvadorans killed since 2013 after deportation from the U.S. But that report is online with Human Rights Watch. But I did want to to mention the Block of Muslim Nations a meeting and basically condemning Trump's recent so-called peace plan for Israel and the Palestinians. And according to their resolution, um, Israel is, quote, responsible for the deterioration of the situation on the ground because of its denial of relevant agreements, its defiance of international legitimacy, and the continuation of the policies of colonization, annexation, settlement expansion, discrimination, and ethnic cleansing, which has been perpetuated against the Palestinian people in the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem, end quote. So, you know, they, this meeting was in Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. So I don't know if the Trump administration has actually responded to this declaration or not, but it was uh, from 57 countries. Well, let us hope that the host nation, Saudi Arabia, 
in particular pays attention to that declaration because uh, I think we have reason to believe that the Saudi regime is a silent proponent of this uh, farce-like peace plan put forward by the Trump team. Right. Well, I know finally you want to talk about uh, Trump's most recent expansion of the travel ban to include, what, all of Africa. <laughs> well, almost. I mean, it certainly includes the most populous nation on the continent, speaking of Nigeria, uh, but it also includes nations like uh, Eritrea and Tanzania as well. Uh, Nigeria, of course, is Africa's largest economy. Uh, the foreign minister said that he felt blindsided uh, by this latest Trump maneuver because the Nigerian government and the U.S. government have been cooperating with regard to trying to combat religious zealotry. Recall that Nigeria has been bedeviled for years now by the so-called Boko Haram movement, which has been engaged in mass kidnappings amongst its many tra transgressions. And of course, Nigeria and the United States uh, are cooperating with regard to fighting religious zealotry in the neighborhood, including in Burkina Faso and Mali, uh, where this kind of religious extremism is growing by leaps and bounds. And I should also say that Nigeria is important in terms of combating piracy. Uh, the Gulf of Guinea has replaced the Somali coast as the epicenter of piracy. And certainly this uh, latest maneuver by the Trump administration in some ways contradicts this hysteria we're often fed with regard to the growing Chinese and Russian role in Africa. One has to ask, how can the United States credibly complain about China and Russia and Africa while putting a shaft into the heart of Nigeria? Because, of course, this will complicate the effort of Nigeria's business class to travel to the United States, not to mention students are traveling to the United States to get higher education. So once again, Mr. Trump shows this contempt for Africa, a contempt that he expressed in his typical colloquial fashion when he basically referred to the entire continent as a kind of, quote, crap hole, unquote. Actually, he used a, a more colorful barnyard epithet. Well, I'm just still trying to just sort through everything happening here in D.C. I don't want to uh, end our conversation without mentioning your recent trip to France. And I think that you had one of your many books translated there and you were received by enthusiastic audiences. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, yes, the biography that I wrote and published a few years ago about the great Paul Robeson was translated into French. And I traveled to France just a few days ago, and it was in the context of a Robeson festival in France. Like many civilized countries all over the world, France celebrates Robeson. They see him as a hero. They even see him as a kind of national hero. Uh, which is, in a sense, appropriate since he spoke uh, fluent French, amongst other languages. And certainly the turnout and the lionizing of Robeson during my brief stay there was quite remarkable. And I think, in many ways, is a positive sign, uh, hopefully, uh, when we, or if we have to reach out to France for solidarity as this Trumpian counter-revolution proceeds, uh, we will be greeted with open arms. 
Okay. Well, that's leaving this otherwise unhopeful week on a hopeful note. (laughs) I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. January 31st, the D.C. Council's Committee on Housing and Neighborhood Revitalization heard testimony from the community, organizations, and government witnesses on the so-called Transformation Plan. This plan, set forth by the D.C. Housing Authority, calls for the demolition and rebuilding of public housing units. Early testimony was heartfelt. My name is Ms. Shante High. I am the uh, president of the council at Park Morton, and um, though I haven't written out my testimony, I am speaking solely from the heart today. And I was standing in my office on waiting on my ride here, and looking around when I was elected three years ago, I was so proud to call myself the resident council president of Park Morton because I wanted to serve my community and make it better. I wanted to bring my community to a place where we all could be proud of being working families and look forward to the future that was coming up behind us, our children. I developed a Park Morton Equity Plan. Please excuse me. I developed a Park Morton Equity Plan with the hopes that DCHA would work with us to help us to prosper, to move forward with becoming entrepreneurs 
and to move forward with becoming homeowners and to get out from underneath the welfare system. And to try to do better for ourselves. But all we've been met with is oppression. They've taken every idea that I've ever had and put their name on it and repositioned it. And now they've just started pushing our families out without even giving us a bill first sight. The, the Bruce Monroe Park is still tied up in litigation and we have nowhere to go. Yet, just yesterday, I was called down to the 1133 building to do my own relocation HCVP voucher packet to move out my home of 19 years where my daughters are being raised. <laughs> where I've built the future. My daughter, the eight tier or high, who is now studying forensic science at Harrisburg University on a full-ride scholarship, where the stigmas have been placed, where the stereotypes have been placed on, on, on our families, where our families are working, where I am trying to build my character and my soul to be something better than what people think comes out of Park Morton. DCHA continues to hold us down. Please help us. Please don't push us out of our homes. We want so much more than this. Please don't displace us. Councilwoman Nadeau appeared surprised when Chairperson Anita Bonds responded to Ms. Hyde by saying that her displacement at Park Morton was due to the discovery of lead in her housing units and not the transformation plan. Later, Councilwoman Silverman weighed in on the DCHA and its repositioning plan, which speaks to how the transformation plan will be financed. I am extremely concerned that the DC Housing Authority is not just drifting away from its mission to serve our most vulnerable residents, but deliberately abandoning our most vulnerable residents. I fear that it's grown into an appendage of the real estate division of our deputy mayor for planning and economic development. And this is going to lead to the continued gentrification of our city. Um, I'm, I'm just going to say it plain because it's Friday night and none of us have time to waste. Um, so, and I'll tell you where my anxiety comes from and a lot of you know exactly what I'm going to say. Um, my anxiety comes from evidence, very clear evidence, that deals being done by the housing authority are for not for the benefit of residents who live in public housing, but for developers. Um, and I'll give you example number one, which is the handling, the very recent handling of the redevelopment of their headquarters mm -hmm. at 1133 North Capitol Street. Um, for those who don't know, the Housing Authority uh, has a uh, headquarters that sits on very prime real estate, 
right next to the new NPR headquarters within walking distance of two metros, a Harris Teeter, and thousands of jobs. Um, this is property that the housing authority owns that, that the city gave to it to leverage uh, because we knew we were going to have to rebuild the authorities' headquarters to leverage for the benefit of public housing residents, and what I believe we have gotten is for the is, is a giveaway mm-hmm. to three politically connected developers. Um, you know, and let's talk about what that means for our city. So we talk that we want to be an equitable city, an inclusive city a city that cares about people of all income. But what we are doing with our own government is leading to the continued pushing out of poor residents in our city. Um, And as we saw in the Washington Post, and then people, and then also pushing toward a voucher-driven housing authority, which, in which um, those with vouchers have to make rational decisions that lead their families to move to Maryland. And we read about this in the Washington Post just this past week. Um, I'm not going to, you know, you all are here to testify and we're here to listen to you, so I'm not going to go on and on. Um, I am going to talk a little bit about the repositioning plan. Um, I have, you know, so certainly I have concerns, especially about the use of Section 18. Uh, that we might not have ownership in these deals. Uh, I'll be asking Director Garrett directly about that. I also have very big concerns about relocating 400 families a year. I have concerns just about the relocation plan. I have concerns about the capacity of the Housing Authority to do this. Um, You know, this is where the rubber meets the road and where uh, we have to make sure that the words that we always say about being an equitable city and giving everyone a fair shot, we mean it when it comes to the housing authority, and that we're not, it's, it, and that we're not just giving away very valuable real estate in our city to developers. Another hearing is scheduled on February 20th at 11 a.m. to discuss legislation on rental vouchers. Please consult the D.C. City Council calendar for updates and schedule changes. If you would like to help fight displacement, connect with Empower D.C. at empowerdc.org. This is Lydia Curtis. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. There will be a fundraiser. Don't forget that fundraiser for the protectors of the Venezuela Embassy. Friday, February 7th, again, tonight as we go to broadcast, go to the Facebook event or to RSVP or to defendembassyprotectors.org. The defenders are Margaret Flowers, Kevin Zies, David Paul, and Adrian Pine. And their trial begins Tuesday, February 11th, 9 a.m. at the Pretty Men Courthouse, 333 Constitution Avenue, Northwest, Washington, D.C., room 22A. Go to defendembassyprotectors.org for more information or ways to support you can contact us, work with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, 
onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. The music we played this hour included the Isley Brothers' Fight the Power, Gene Carr and Revelation, and Yasin Bey, Umi Says. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank you.